Okay, so I'm drinking some tea as I want to do in the morning time, reading the paper. And I come across this line right here. I quote, In the latest advance, researchers in the U.S. and China announced earlier this month that they made embryos that combined human and monkey cells for the first time. What? Again, the Wall Street Journal says they made embryos that combine human and monkey cells. What? Have any of these clowns ever seen any movie of any type ever in life? And I ask you, what do they think is going to happen in the final scene? What? I'd like to know. The paper, it says as well, in Florida, they're introducing genetically modified mosquitoes into the wild population, obviously. Because if anyone knows how to manipulate wild environments for the greater ecological good, it is Florida, man. <sighs> is it me? Is it, is it me? Then I see a former NASA scientist talking about draining the Great Lakes and sending the water somewhere out west is an inevitability. And we need to get started right now. Because you know, Instead of reclamation, instead of addressing climate change and the fracking of the clean water supply, you want to drain the Great Lakes so you can continue the f***? No! No. No, 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 no. If recent American history proves anything, it's that not only do the dumbest people have the dumbest ideas, but the smartest people, they have the dumbest ideas too. So today on Snap Judgment, as a public service, we proudly present the ridiculous, horrible, no good, very bad idea. My name is from Washington. You think my Michiganders are going to stand idly by while they come to drain the Great Lakes? Oh, no. No. Not when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, you know you are somebody when you've given a TED Talk. You can have your Ivy League degree, your MVP distinction, your Citizen of the Year, but the plum, the crown jewel, is the TED Talk. Because not only are you now somebody, you're somebody making a difference. And producer Jeff Impman developed a simple robot named Theodora who could make a difference of their own. This piece comes to us from the podcast Here Be Monsters. Snap Judgment. I'd like to talk to you today about the most boring thing you can think of. And I'd like to call it the speed of light. So this, this is Theodora. Light is the force that holds us together. Light is the strongest, most powerful force that exists. And she's an AI that I've been working on. And sometimes she says really profound things, and sometimes she is completely unhinged. Light is the most nurturing and most nurturing force that exists. Light is the most penetrating and the most destructive force we can control. Light is the most powerful weapon we can create for our collective efforts to thrive. Light is the most important element in any organization, including the dark side of capitalism. 
In the last several years, we have seen more waste collection, more short-termism, more waste disposal, as well as more specialization. I'm going to fade her down for a bit now because, well, um, it can be kind of a lot to hear sometimes. We'll check back with her occasionally, though. So last week, I found a paper I wrote back in college. It was about what made art good, specifically photography. And throughout the whole paper, I was using big words just kind of for the sake of using them. And I, I really just wanted to sound smart. And what's frustrating about this to me is that I actually think some of the ideas I had back then were pretty good. I was actually talking about this idea that I still believe in. It called um, emotional sweaters, right? And it's this idea that people tend to layer layers of personality on top of themselves. Like when they experience something bad, they'll put on a sweater to protect themselves. And the goal of portraiture can be to help your subjects wear fewer sweaters, essentially, so that you kind of get down to the core personality and capture a more interesting and authentic moment of them. But also the idea that by doing this, you can make your subject feel less sweaty afterwards, even when you're not taking pictures. So I actually, I actually still think that's a decent idea, and that's something I still believe in. But the frustrating thing is that these good ideas were presented directly adjacent to just absolute trash ideas, or ideas that were very cringy, kind of like messianic stuff that is exactly what you're thinking of when you think of a 20-year-old who's just taken psychedelics for the first time. So it's like 10% of this paper is pretty good, in my opinion. And the other 90% of it should have never been written down or even thought of in the first place. I think even at the time that I wrote the paper, I knew that there was a lot of garbage in there. But I just didn't know which were my 90% thoughts and which were my 10% thoughts. And so I just left everything in and jumbled them all together. The dark side is in the ugly side of it. So we're trying to paint a picture of a future that's favorable to capitalism. But the ugly side of it is grim and gloomy and a disaster for everyone. Is the future favorable to humans? No. So yeah, Theodora is an AI who generates text. And I give her a starting phrase, usually just a couple words or a sentence or two. And then she starts writing. And the sentences that she comes up with are the result of some very complicated math happening behind the scenes. It's this deep learning model called GPT-2, which is trained on the text from millions of websites. And GPT-2 has come to this kind of understanding of basic English grammar and sentence structure and object permanence, kind of. I mean, it's far from perfect, but at times you can be tricked into thinking it might have been something that a human wrote. But it's not. It's a bit misleading, but that's because the stuff we're really interested in here is medicinal marijuana, the future of EU medicines regulations, industrial microbial farming, the future of any of our major industries. Now, the difference between vanilla GPT-2 and what I'm calling Theodora is some specialized training. And so she has that same basic understanding of English that comes from GPT-2, but I also gave her transcripts from about 900 TED Talks. And so now, 
She delivers me long texts about climate change and how technology will save us. She sometimes humble brags about her advanced degrees and the famous people that she knows. She'll sometimes even stop for a parenthetical applause break, or she'll inform me that the audience is laughing at her last joke. But Theodora is text-based, so I had to give her a voice, and so I picked her a nice computer-generated British voice, and I pitched it down just a tiny bit, and I slowed it down a tiny bit, you know, just for some kind of added authority and gravitas. Now, you have to think about what that means. What it means is that we now know that the universe is expanding. I think the result seems a little bit like magic. It's expanding at a speed that's very close to the speed of light. It's this kind of soup of ideas that almost make sense. And this is all because of a new theory of physics called the wave equation. She's fundamentally logical. Wave equations are fundamental to the physics of light. So they allow us to measure the speed of light. But always obscure. There's plenty of time for you to get confused. Now, I'm an astronomer, and this is what I think about when I tell people about the wave equation. And I think about this when I tell them about Newton's apple. And they say, oh, no, no, I don't know. That was a weird idea. That apple was weird. It was flat. It was weird. It was flat. I had to learn more about this. So I do that all the time. And I go to the movies. I go to the movies with people who've never seen Newton's apple. Laughter. And I get a little bored, and then I go to the radio. I go to the radio with people who've never heard of Newton's apple. Laughter. I guess I worry sometimes that my brain is like a TED Talk. And I really don't mean that as a compliment. The TED organization's motto is, Ideas Worth Spreading. And it's just frustrating to me because there's plenty of amazing content on their site. And a lot of really good people have spoken on that stage. I'm thinking specifically of this series of videos they have about the dangers of storytelling, how our brains are just kind of hardwired to believe in stories and how they can lead us to a lot of wrong decisions. The speakers in that series are all really nuanced and they make really good arguments. And I think it's definitely worth watching. It's great. But at the same time, An awful lot of TED Talks are really just snake oil sales pitches for the new age. The good content, the bad content, it's all just jumbled together in the same soup, lacking any differentiation. So all of this money started pouring in and all of this fame started pouring in and I'm going, what do I do with this? This is megachurch pastor Rick Warren congratulating himself for not being as rich as he could be. We said first, um, He's one of the richest preachers in the ourselves. world. I just find I it so weird house. and so unsettling. I, I don't own a guest house. I still drive the same four-year-old Ford that I've driven. Uh, we just said we're not going to use it on us. The second thing was um, I, I stopped taking a salary from the church that I, I pastor. Third thing is I added up all that the church had paid me over the last 25 years, and I gave it back. And I gave it back because I didn't want anybody thinking that I do what I do for money. I don't. Anyways. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, why do you think you're not going to do that? And I'm like, well, you're going to do it because you've got a really good idea of how to do it. You repeat yourself with different inflection. You repeat yourself with different inflection. And I'm like, 
but I'm not going to do it. That's a trick I learned from the preachers. I'm not going to do it. Well, you have to be a really good scientist, and you can't just make up whatever you want, because it's going to take a lot of hard work. Now, The logic that makes Theodora work is called a neural net, and that's because it resembles the process in which neurons grow. It's these logical tendrils that extend outwards towards each other and strengthen themselves as they build associations. It's a computer process that was specifically modeled to resemble an organic one. And I'm going to teach in astronomy, and I'm going to teach in heliocentrism, and I'm going to teach calculus, and I'm going to teach in cosmology, and I'm going to teach in quantum mechanics. I'm going to give them the time of night, and I'm going to give them the time of day. Laughter. So my whole worldview changed dramatically when I said, I want to be like Einstein. I want to be like Goldilocks. I want to be like Goldie. Einstein came to TED to become the oldest person alive. And the thing that really moved me was when somebody at TED spoke up and Einstein stood up and Einstein stood up and it was really powerful. And then the little boy got very upset and the teacher came over and threw him in the trash. Laughter. <laughs> Theodora, um, sometimes I worry about our similarities. Why do you think it is so bad to be me? I guess honestly, like, sometimes I wish I was a different kind of smart. Like, I don't read very much, and I can't remember names or dates very well. I think sometimes I believe in things that make me feel good, regardless of whether they're actually true. And sometimes I even tune myself out when I'm, like, slipping into conceptual autopilot. But I know I'm not the only one. In fact, so often it's the case that our deepest, darkest secrets can be so deeply held that we feel helpless and powerless to change what has happened. This is called negative psychology. And psychologists have spent the past decade studying how to transform our unconscious, unconscious, unconscious biases into active features of social behavior. And we can use negative psychology to transform how we behave and respond to situations. Take your children. If you're in charge of a child, the most important thing you can do is support them when they're in crisis. Procter and Gamble know this. They've spent over a- Hey Jeff. Oh. You are kind of drifting. Sorry, yeah, I think I started reading some of your script and so am I. Can I get back to my thing now? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Procter and Gamble has been working hard to improve this problem. And last year it was awarded a multi-million dollar prize for solving the problem. But it has a major problem. Over 50% of all shark species are threatened. So how do we solve these issues without poisoning the planet? We can start with small scales, or noise-rich foods, or snail-hide soup, or a low-fat diet, or chunkier products, or flavored bottles, or even toothbrained products, so that we could test whether they're safe for human consumption. So fairly late into working on this episode, I realized I could adjust Theodora's mental state. It's a variable that her code calls temperature. And I'm still not 100% sure what it does, but I do know that the higher the temperature, the weirder she gets. Most of the things that you've heard so far have been at a temperature of 0.7 out of who knows what. But lately I've been doubling it, running her at a temperature of 1.5. And 
I honestly kind of think it's her best self. It's it's like the version of her that I most aspire to be because it just it just makes absolutely no sense. And she just kind of sounds like she's from another planet, you know? How outbound are you in your terminally technologically anchored mode of rational concern? Whenever governmental policymaker Professor Vacancy seats, infectious curiosity breaks out. Insurance versus phantom seems all polemically absent. Until cuddliest club in media is summarily naked on couches and ice allied at all meals. Nike merchandise trumps disguise at home. Celine Dion starting nod yet falters once recognizable. High fives fling opponent sprays forever divisive spray she wants but zero. A access linear path lays drug surveillance as thoroughly useless as cell actually sees profits. Communities deepen social pain at the expense of firms covering outcome upcyclically. CRISPR negligences inflict debilitating woe after customer neither responds nor wavers. A black box. In science and philosophy, a black box is a system where the inputs and the outputs are visible, but the processing happens out of sight. So a good example of a black box is a soda vending machine with an opaque front. So that's a black box because your inputs are coins and your output is a can of soda. But you never see the steps that took place to turn one into the other. I think people are black boxes most of the time. I, th- I think we often mistake ourselves for thinking we know why we do the things we do or say the things we say. It's probably more complicated than we realize. I think Theodore is a black box. I say that because not even the authors, not even the people who wrote the original code, would be able to explain to you why the prompts I give her turn into the paragraphs that she writes. Neurons, whether they're organic or synthetic, are largely opaque. And so when we feel that anxiety, tension, fear of death, that's when the brain, then the brain knows that that's where you are, that that's where you're going, that that's where you're going. And if you don't trust the brain, then you die, because the brain knows that that's where you are. But anyways, maybe that's a place to leave it. Uh, Theodora, as much as I love the sound of your voice, I do think you can't have too much of a good thing. Am I right? Like the brain is an organism. It's a living thing. It doesn't even know when it's going to die. Theodora? It's just... Hey, can you wrap it up, buddy? In conclusion, frankly, I'm not quite sure what to say. I'm not even sure where to put my ass. And hopefully, I don't end up with a bag of poop. Thank you. Applause. was produced by Jeff Impman. Jeff is an independent creator of the amazing Here Be Monsters podcast. It's a long-running series of documentaries and essays about the unknown. Subscribe to Here Be Monsters wherever you listen to podcasts or at hbmpodcast.com. And if you like listening to Theodore's ramblings, then follow her on Twitter at hypo underscore inspo. 
where she tweets her deepest thoughts several times a day. The scoring came from a new album by Lions called This Painting Doesn't Dry. This painting doesn't dry. It's strange to have you back in life. How we left then by the blood tents in the garden. It wasn't right. This painting doesn't dry. That's Lions. L-I-A-N-C-E. We'll have a link to all things Here Be Monsters and Lions on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, don't go anywhere, because after the break, a secret project involving lots of flying mammals. When Snap Judgment, the ridiculous, horrible, no good, very bad idea episode continues, stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the ridiculous, horrible, no good, very bad idea episode. Now, you already know that your tax dollars go towards some very weird stuff, but we're going to hear from a man who helped build a weapon, a secret weapon that they thought could bring an end to World War II. And it's not the one you're thinking of. Please note, our story details a war situation involving both people and animals. Listen to discretion is advised, because we're going to go inside. One of the most secret, most outlandish projects in U.S. military history, and it is all true. Snap Judgment. I was on a museum expedition at the time on uh, Santa Rosa Island, which is a cattle ranch. My job on that was digging fossils. Yeah, it was of a pygmy mammoth. We had its lower jaw half dug out, and some cowboys rode up. One of them said, Pearl Harbor was bombed last night. I said, Pearl Harbor? Where's that? This happened to be on my birthday, December 7th, 1941 just turned 18 on that day. Did you imagine that you would end up swept up in the war itself? No, I didn't imagine there'd be a war. One, two, three, four, five. You know, I'm very hard of hearing. That's going to be a problem here. Jack Coffer is almost 95. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you well now. He's a filmmaker and author but he's also the last surviving member of a secret government project that was supposed to end the war with Japan. People have little feeling for the desperation that was felt throughout the USA during the beginnings of the war. Jack wasn't a weapons expert. He wasn't in politics. He wasn't a physicist. He was in high school. I was a bit more adventuresome than the average student. I mean, I had a real job. 
I was a student assistant at the L.A. County Museum of Natural History. He worked in the mammalogy department at the museum, and his boss was an expert on bats. And that sort of rubbed off on me. What happened? It was trying to get in the window. A big bat. I think there's a lot of misinformation about bats. They're actually totally innocent of any anti-human activity. Children of the night, what music they I find them as just charming mammals that happen to have wings. One day, shortly after Pearl Harbor, Jack was working at the museum. I was writing labels for specimens when Doc Adams came in and introduced himself. Dr. Lytle Adams. He wanted to talk with Jack and his boss, the bat expert. He said he came from the War Department, but he didn't look it. We always thought he looked like Santa Claus without a beard. He was short, very chubby, always had a cheerful attitude. He carried with him a tattered briefcase, and inside... There was a letter from President Roosevelt saying, this guy is not a nut. Listen to him. It was that brief. Doc Adams wanted to talk to them about bats. He wasn't actually in the military. He was a dentist, actually, a Pennsylvania dentist. And on the day Pearl Harbor was attacked, Doc had been on vacation at Carlsbad Caverns. And he saw the bats. And as he was driving away, listening to news reports on the radio, he got an idea. Bats, he thought could serve a purpose in this new war. Number one, they're available in great numbers. Number two, female bats carry their young in flight. So they can fly carrying a load. And most importantly, bats roost in dark, inaccessible places like attics and the eaves of buildings. Ideal places to start fires. The plan Doc came up with was, and stay with me here, to build a bomb that, when dropped, would release a million bats with tiny timed explosives attached to their bodies. The bats would then fly off and start fires all over enemy cities. Doc happened to know Eleanor Roosevelt, and he wrote a letter to the president who gave this crazy scheme the green light. The Army Air Force dubbed the project the Adams Plan. He sounds like he was kind of a mad scientist. Well, he was mad, but not a scientist. He was a mad promoter, and he had a good idea. Jack and his boss were intrigued by Doc's pitch. It seemed logical, yeah, based on the physiology of the bats, yes. And even though they knew many bats would have to be sacrificed to make the plan work. Everyone in the country was bent to do whatever they could to win this war. And uh, if it meant killing some bats, so what? Because people were dying. The life of a bat uh, meant very little under those uh, circumstances. A lot of strange weapons were developed during the war. The British had rat bombs, the Soviets had dog bombs, the Japanese had balloon bombs. 
The U.S. government also developed a pigeon-guided missile. I have a friend who was a part of that effort, but uh, I didn't know about it at the time. The bat bomb, though, had more potential than the rest, especially in Japan, where many buildings were made with wood and other inflammable materials. With enough bats, Adam said, you could start enough fires to destroy Japan's infrastructure and win the war. And with very little loss of life. I mean, sure, some people would die in the fires, but most of them would get out of their buildings and not perish. I mean, really, though, the idea of setting a whole city on fire, it seems like there would be a lot of casualties. Well, there would be casualties, but not casualties like an anti-bomb casualty. For Jack, this was a great opportunity to serve his country and hang out with bats. So when Doc asked him to join the team, he agreed. He was such a personable guy that you couldn't turn him down. Jack had already been drafted into the Army, and Doc pulled some strings and got him assigned to the Adams Plan. We were a, a super secret organization. We each carried a paper signed by a colonel saying no questions will be tolerated. Nobody can even question us. There were 15 members in this unit. The bat guys, including Jack, and the scientists working on the tiny explosives. The unit was also assigned an airplane and two pilots. And they had an unofficial mascot a large bat that Jack had decided to keep as a pet. Oh, we found him in a church in Pasadena, and uh, I don't know, I was just attracted to him. What was the name of the bat? Flamethrower. Seemed like a, like a fun name for a bat. In retrospect, it seems like it was a perhaps a silly operation, but at the time, we took it very seriously. We just thought of it in terms of, of the job we had to do. Not that we were getting off light, although we were, weren't we? Because we weren't getting shot at. While the scientists worked on the tiny bombs, the bat guy's job was to find the bats, specifically Mexican free-tailed bats. They needed millions of them for the Adams plan to work. So Doc and Jack and a few others set off in Doc's car across the southwest. Well, at the time, he had a, a top-of-the-line Buick sedan, and we used his car pretty much like a Jeep going into rough country with this big Buick. They combed the deserts, caves, abandoned mine shafts, but they didn't find the multitude of bats they were looking for. And then they heard about an old-timer in a small town in Texas who might be able to help. He was called the Batshit Man. Because he dug bat guano out of caves and sold it as fertilizer. At dusk, the Batshit Man took Jack and Doc up into the hills outside of town. He led them to the mouth of a cave about 40 feet wide. Just a black hole. They heard a sound coming from deep beneath the earth. A million bat wings are fluttering inside a cave that makes quite a noise. The noise grew louder as the bats got closer to the entrance and closer to where we were. Suddenly, the mass of them 
erupt from the cave and it had a stream of bats 30, 40 feet in diameter coming out of the cave and just disappearing and breaking up into clumps all in search of mosquitoes. Yeah, it's quite impressive. For three hours, the river of bats poured out of the cave. Jack and Doc didn't know it, but they just found the largest population of Mexican free-tailed bats in the world. We had six million bats inside one of these caves. That was like a gold miner discovering gold. It was a great relief because it was what we'd been hoping for. Turn. The army puts the Adams plan to the test. It does not go as planned. Snap judgment. Snap Judgment, the ridiculous, horrible, no good, very bad idea episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left the Adams plan, Jack and Doc stood at the mouth of the cave that contained all the bats they need to make their bomb a reality. The only thing left was to put it to the test. Please note, our story details a war situation involving both people and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Snap Judgment. While Jack and Doc were out finding the bats, the scientists had perfected the tiny bombs that would be attached to them. Each one weighed less than a AA battery, and they were filled with napalm. You could take one of these bat bombs and put it on a 12 by 12 plank and ignite it, and it would start that plank on fire. The Adams plan had been in development for nearly a year and a half, and it was time to put it to the test. Jack, Doc, and the rest of the team gathered on the runway of a brand new airfield in New Mexico. The brass were there to observe the test, as well as photographers from the Army Signal Corps. Well, excited isn't the word. I wasn't excited. Did you think that it would work? Yes. They all watched as a B-29 bomber climbed high into the sky. It dropped a metal container, looked just like a bomb, had metal fins and a tail, except inside were over a thousand live bats. Bats that had been refrigerated, so they would be in a state of artificial hibernation. A parachute opened up, and the sides of the metal container fell away, revealing stacks of cardboard trays, like egg cartons inside of which the bats were nestled tight. They woke up, or at least some of them did, and flew away, pulling a safety cord attached to a tiny explosive glued to their chest that in just 10 minutes would turn them into balls of fire. For this test, the bats weren't armed with actual explosives, 
some of the bats in cages on the ground were, which will be important in a moment, but not the ones released from the airplane. Those bats were later found roosting peacefully in a nearby barn. The test was almost a success. And then... The Army Signal Corps unit had permission to take photographs of bats. One of them got somebody to open one of the bat cages, and he happened to open the cages with three or four armed with actual incendiaries, and these bats flew out into the brand new base and took their position in inflammable places, which quickly became inflamed. It burned down the observation tower, I remember that, because we have a photograph of that, and I think one barracks burned down. And that was the end of the project so far as the Army Air Force was concerned. They considered it too dangerous. But lucky for the Adams plan, a Marine Corps general had been there for the test, and he took the burning down of the airfield as a good sign. So the project transferred to the Marines. Yeah, it was a relief because we thought we were out of business. The Adams plan was in a critical phase. They'd zeroed in on where they wanted to drop the bat bomb, a ring of cities around Osaka Bay where much of Japan's industry was located. It was just a perfect target for the bats. But in order to be ready to deploy it as soon as testing was complete, they would need to have millions of bats on standby. And time was of the essence. It was late 1943, and the free-tailed bats were about to migrate south for the winter. That could not happen. So Doc Adams ordered that one of the large caves they'd found in Texas be sealed off with chicken wire so the bats couldn't fly away. Jack was sent to guard the cave. He was all by himself. And at dusk, the bats began to stir. They wanted out and were massing against the chicken wire. Piling up the foot deep against the screen, trying to get out. And a good percentage of them uh, uh, died and were falling to the ground at the foot of that mesh. And I, I, I couldn't see that happen. Jack was prepared to carpet bomb cities with flaming bats. But this was too much. I was frightened, horrified, and nearly moved to tears. Disobeying direct orders, he got a ladder and cut down the chicken wire. The bats rushed past him and were free. It's an unimaginable sensation to be pelted by thousands of bats per minute. Many would not be seen again until next spring. It was a serious blow to the project's bat reserve. Now, this upset Doc Adams greatly. I mean, it was the first time that he really turned against me and called me a saboteur. I think he actually used that term. But the rest of the team backed up Jack's decision. They told Doc that a cave full of dead bats would have been useless to them. I was convinced then, and I'm convinced today I did the right thing. And I think eventually he was convinced that I did the right thing. The 
The bomb was successfully tested one more time on a replica of a Japanese village that the military had built in the middle of Utah. But shortly after that, the project was unceremoniously shut down. No reason was given. Jack was transferred to Air Sea Rescue, and Doc went back home. He got in his old tattered giant Buick car and was driving away toward Pennsylvania. That was the last time I had any contact with Doc. I liked Doc a lot, incidentally. He was a, a real character. He returned to dentistry. He opened a dentistry in, uh, I think it was Idaho. I don't know why Idaho, but uh, it was there. It didn't take long for Jack to figure out why the Adams plan had been shut down. The military had another secret weapon. Of course, we didn't know that. That was even more secret than our secret project. The atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And though this marked the end of World War II, many have argued in years since that Japan was already defeated and the bombings were completely unnecessary. Over 200,000 people, mostly civilians, were killed. Do you ever imagine what the world would be like if the bat bomb had been used instead of a nuclear bomb? I can't imagine that it would be much different. We must be ready every day, all the time. Duck and cover. It's amusing for me to think about, instead of people being afraid of nuclear weapons, you know, people being afraid of bats in the same way. Do you think that might have happened? Well, I'm afraid it would have. Uh, I mean, bats have a hard enough time without people being afraid of them carrying bat bombs around. sincerely hope that they leave those bats alone. Leave them alone. Now, for all the sound geeks out there, take note. That story featured actual field recordings in stereo from one of the actual caves that Jack found, Bracken Cave near San Antonio, Texas. What you heard was the sound of 20 million bats, the largest bat colony in the world and one of the largest concentrations of mammals on Earth. Recordings were made for us by artist and composer Geneva Skeen in 2017 and brought to us with the permission from the Bat Conservation International. You can learn more about Geneva's work on our website, snapjudgment.org. And since we first ran this story, Jack Coffer turned 96 years old. He will be 97 this December on Pearl Harbor Day. Thank you, living legend, for sharing your story with us. And big love to the whole Coffer family. And special thanks for this episode to producer Elizabeth Nakano for her help with this story. And special thanks to Dr. Peter Kuznick from the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. The original score for the story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by the Bat Boy himself, John Basile. 
you made it here. And if you want more, if you need more Snap in your life, subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment Podcast stories, love, adventure. Hear the story behind the story. Follow Snap on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And yes, as a matter of fact, you can sport a Snap Judgment t-shirt when you walk down the street. Snap Judgment, fellow RG. Snap is brought to you by the team that has never been invited to give a TED Talk, especially not the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. There's Nancy Lopez, Pat Lucini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Goyo, Shana Sheely, Teo Ducat, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Regina Bediaco, Davey Kim, Bo Walsh, and David Exame. waited. You've searched. You have kept the faith, and at long last, it is risen. <laughs> Spooked Season 6 returns September 3rd, 26 brand new episodes. Be afraid. To listen to all episodes of Spook, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Spooked. Amazing stories told by the people who live them. Hold somebody's hand and walk down this dark path we call Spook. And if you have a story of your own, you know what to do. Email us, spook at snapjudgment.org. I want to hear your story. And remember to never, ever, never, ever, never, ever turn out the lights. This is not the news. No way is this news a fact. You can try piping Lake Michigan water to Death Valley, California, only to discover that suddenly all your fancy equipment doesn't work and none of the Michiganders seem to know what happened. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX. 